I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Moses Lino Silva. He's here to discuss his new book, Minoritarian Liberalism, A Travici Life in a Brazilian Favela. Before that, I just have a couple of announcements. First of all, this Sunday is the next event in the Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult series at Morbid Anatomy Museum Online. May 22nd at 2 o'clock New York time, we have Mary Wilde presenting The Death Drive on film and presenting alongside her, Dr. Clint Burnham will be discussing The Revolution Will Go Viral on sexting, the digital, and contagion. That's Sunday, May 22nd at Morbid Anatomy Museum online, 2 o'clock New York time, which is 11 Pacific Coast, and 7 p.m. in the UK, and 8 p.m. here in Sweden. For more information and for tickets, go to Morbid Anatomy's website, morbidanatomy.org slash events. You can also find information at the Psych Art Cult website, p-s-y-c-h-a-r-t-c-u-l-t.org. The other announcement is the next Psychoanalysis Art and the Occult Conference is going to be held later this year. We're in the planning stages. It's going to be October 14th through 16th, 2022 at Husset's Biograf in Copenhagen. The title of the conference is Visionary Medium, Psychoanalysis and the Magic of Cinema. For more information on that, you can also visit psychartcult.org. And now we have Moses Lino Silva discussing his new book, Minoritarian Liberalism, A Travici Life in a Brazilian Favela, by the University of Chicago Press. As with all Rendering Unconscious podcasts, this episode can also be found at YouTube if you'd like to watch the conversation or access the transcript. Just go to Trapart Films' YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T, film at YouTube. So did you have anywhere in particular you'd like to begin or should we just jump into the fact that you just had this book come out? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm very excited about the book. Uh, I've been um, doing some launch events and uh, it's great when people start to actually read your work and engage with your ideas and you get some feedback and you start realizing that there were things when you wrote the book that you didn't see or you didn't notice but that other people when they read they kind of have a different sense of what's in that story so uh, it's, a, it's a really 
um, kind of collaborative but also um, creative process with the with the readers too and that's really interesting absolutely it's like people pick out things either that you hadn't put together in a certain way or their own lens kind of shows different like facets of your work that you know bring it to life in, a, in an even more like fleshed out way right right exactly yeah no, that's uh, um i had um an event with jack halberston and um yeah there was something very interesting about a chapter that i insisted on writing because i thought kind of the research would be incomplete if i didn't explore a certain path so it's a chapter that i talk about sex work in italy and how people from this one brazilian shanty town where i did my research i heard stories that um there were they had a kind of a trafficking human trafficking scheme sending people to italy but nobody in the shanty town really wanted to tell me more. They kind of like hinted at it, but they were not disclosing a lot of information. And I went after that story, almost like an investigator, I think. And um, Jack just um, really brought that to light. And, and, you know, he said, it's very interesting how you went and you yourself did that investigation, even though people, um, we're not totally um, open about it. So things like that, that you, and then you just reflect, oh, that's true, you know, maybe I was a little bit stubborn there that kind of, I had to kind of follow that thread, even though it wasn't very clear how much people actually wanted me to find out more about that um, human trafficking scheme. What did you discover? <laughs> um, so I think, let me see what chapter of the book that is. I think that's chapter six. It, so that's, yeah, chapter six called Roman Slavery. And um, what, what I discovered basically was that, yes, it was very hard to kind of investigate or follow that thread. And perhaps that's not really what you expect from an, an anthropologist to be an investigator in that sense. But I thought I could rely on some friends that were, um, you know, my undergrad was in, in international relations. So a lot of my friends became diplomats. And uh, I thought that the diplomatic body in Italy, the Brazilian diplomatic body would help me, but they made it very clear that it wasn't part of their mission to investigate something like that, that if people needed help, they could come to the embassy in Rome and they would be helped, but they wouldn't just, the Brazilian government wouldn't go after and investigate something like that in Italy just because I was interested or, you know, just, so, so I had to do the research by myself. And um, I did actually go to a place, you know, I had heard the name of the place where uh, potentially Brazilian um, sex workers were, um, they had been taken to this place called um, the Matatoyo, the Abattoir in Rome. And because they had a huge car, car park outside the Abattoir. And uh, I went by myself at night, which was quite scary. And I described that in the book. Uh, but the amazing thing was that I did find a Brazilian sex worker, uh, Travesti, and we can talk more about this category, Travesti. It's in the subtitle of the book. Um, and she was not only from Brazil, but from Rio and from the exact same Shantitan as I had done my field work while in Brazil. So that encounter was amazing. She was a bit suspicious at first. Like, who is this person coming after me? 
but as soon as I started to tell her the names of people in the Shantytown that I knew and that we knew in common, and you know, um, she opened up and we had a very interesting, I think, conversation, which is kind of part, a central part of that chapter in the book. How fascinating. Maybe that's why you followed the thread. So that this maybe this connection was just like pulling you. <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, I remember taking this bus to the outskirts and it was very dark and I didn't know Rome well and I was really scared. So I kept kind of getting off the bus and asking people, I know, am I at this place? And they would say, no, you have to go much further. So that feeling was really um I think I still, you know, I can clearly remember what I felt was kind of scary. And then when I got off the bus at the right place, I spoke to one person who was an Italian sex worker and she said, no, if you want to talk to Brazilians, you have to go much further into the darkness, into the car park. And the fact that the second person in the middle of the like, car park that I find would be someone from the same shanty town with friends in common gave me a huge kind of relief and a kind of sense of, you know, maybe yeah, maybe that was the whole point of doing this was to meet this person and have, to have this conversation. Exactly. I have a very magical worldview and I feel like, yeah, things happen. <laughs> I like that too. So what made you decide to write this book in the first place? Right. Uh, so I'll answer that and also try to explain a little bit of this category travesti in Portuguese or travesti um, because it's so central to the book. Um, you know, I was born in a place in Brazil, it's like the Brazilian Midwest. And uh, most of the images we got on TV, there were images from Rio, in Rio de Janeiro. Um, that's where you have the major TV channel in Brazil. It's kind of the Hollywood of Brazil. And so we watched a lot of images from Rio and actually what people think Brazil is, it's heavily influenced by that image of the beach culture and so on, which is not the Brazil was born in, but- um, Brazil is a huge country. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. So the, the Midwest part is more of a cowboy culture. You know, It's a very different kind of scene to the beach, beach culture. Um, so when you watch a lot of, soap operas and movies made in Rio, you start to realize that in Rio you have very clearly um, kind of separate territories, urban territories. You have the what's what's called the kind of formal city or sometimes the asphalt. That's how the shantytown dwellers refer to the formal city, the asphalt. And you have the shantytowns, the favelas, um, or the shantytown dwellers, some, sometimes you call the favelas um, the hills because usually those shantytown areas are on hillsides. Um, and that was very striking to me because it, it looked so um, unequal and it felt so unjust, unfair, that you'd have a kind of a city like Rio that's kind of split in two. Even though people, you know, the shantytowns in Rio, I think it's even more remarkable that they're so close to the wealthy neighborhoods. So it's not like some cities where you have the city center, you have all the wealth, and then sometimes on the outskirts, you have poverty. Here we're talking about um, kind of juxtapositions that are very obvious. So Ipanema in front, you know, they will be very close to a shantytown. This place where I did research is the largest shantytown in Rio, and it's very close to a wealthy neighborhood called São Conrado. So I wanted to kind of understand that kind of urban inequality. And I thought that 
as I started to mature that project and I started to study anthropology and started to think about a project, I thought, you know, something remarkable about Stentitans is that the state does not operate in those areas, those territories, as the state does um, outside in the formal city. Meaning some people would say even that there is no state in Stentitans, but that's not really the case because the state is present in a, in a very um, uh, anomalous, kind of weird, unfair way. The state is heavily present sometimes with the army, sometimes, right? Even the army, the Brazilian army had already occupied the territories, Brazilian, the territories of shantytowns um, during, uh, there was a government policy called um, occupation and pacification. Uh, the police will come, so that, that's the state again. It doesn't come very often, but it does come once in a while. I mean, people have electricity and they have water supply, not everyone, but a lot of people do. So that's also the presence of the state. I'm saying the state is not totally absent, but it's, it's an ir irregular presence. When it's present, it's pre usually present with a heavy arm of the kind of police or even the army. And I thought, well, if people don't have the state to guarantee kind of social services or social, or social goods or even rights right social rights how can they i mean what happens to their daily lives in terms of freedoms and liberties so a lot of our kind of reliance that we have the right to speech say or to do some things it's because we feel we are protected by the law right so we have rights over liberty uh, but if you don't have the state to enforce your rights what happens, right? And when you think, and just if you read newspapers or if you watch TV, you'll see a lot of uh, narratives saying that the Shantytown population, they actually are under the tyrant gov government, which is in those territories, you have a lot of drug lords. There's a lot of drug trafficking. And those drug lords, they have a lot of power and they impose a certain um, kind of system to the, to the Shantytown. So for people who are outside of the Shantytown, they feel that these are par parallel states. So that there's a lot of that rhetoric that Shantytowns are parallel states and that the Brazilian state, the official state is not operating and that somehow Shantytown dwellers are under the power of those tyrants, right? Those um, drug lords. So just uh, to, to kind of sum summarize what I wanted to do first was to understand what, what is it like to live in a shanty town when you have no rights. And therefore I, I assumed before starting the field work, no liberty, no freedom, because you were not, you, you were not protected by the state. Your, your rights were not enforced by the state. I wanted to just um, do an ethnography red string the lack of liberty and the lack of freedom in the life of Shantytown dwellers. That was the idea. But as you know, it happens a lot with anthropology. Once you do the research and once you do the field work, you, you, know, you're, you start to realize you're wrong or you start to realize that there was a lot more to that story that you first imagined. You start to see how your project was very limited. And with me, it was exactly that. After you know, a few weeks in, in the shantytown, living in the shantytown, I realized, well, 
look, I, I don't think there is an absolute lack of freedom here or an absolute lack of liberty. And I keep saying liberty and freedom, but in Portuguese, it's only one word. So liberdade means both liberty and freedom. And that's, you know, the research was done in Portuguese. So I was um, at all times concerned with this category, liberdade. And I keep translating it as both liberty and freedom because that's what it means. So when I started to live there, I saw a lot of um, uh, people talking about freedom, talking about liberty in very you know, important kind of moments of their lives or um, in specific contexts like, for example, so I'll start to give you examples that I described in the book. There were liberation um, services at the evangelical church, the, uh, the main local evangelical church. They had a day of the week where they would do liberation services. They were called liberation services. And I'm like, you know, people are practicing this form of liberation. They're going to church to be liberated. There is something that, you know, to them, it, it sounds very important that they would be liberated. And in the case of the church, what they're liberated from is um, kind of evil spirits, for example. And then I, I thought, look, there is, I think I was assuming too much in terms of what liberty or freedom in, in, in terms of what they mean or what they are. So where does that sense of spiritual liberation from evil, how does that fit what I understand liberty to be, for example, right? What, how does that fit with what I have in mind in terms of rights and freedom? So I started to realize that maybe my own understandings of freedom and liberty, they were very much um, kind of um, conformed to ideas of liberalism as a philosophy and as a political theory, as a kind of series of historical events. So we, we all learn about the French Revolution and what it means to fight fully for liberty, liberty. And um, so I started to think how much actually I am assuming too much that I know what freedom and liberty, you know, what these things are. Because it seems to me that people here in the center town, they are interested in freedom and liberty, but in not in the obvious ways that I was expecting. So I started to register all these other forms of liberty and freedom. And during the field work, you know, over more than a year that I lived there, actually, I started that field work in 2009 and I didn't stop. I lived there in, on a daily basis for, you know, almost 18 months. And then I kept going back, um, you know, I never actually had my, I never cut my ties with people. It's still, it's still, I'm still related to people and that they call me, they call me today. Um, but yeah, the, the, so the setup of the book is basically to say I had an kind of a, what I call a normative sense of what liberties and freedoms were and how those ideas of freedom and liberty, they came from what I call normative liberalism. Mm -hmm. So they came from uh, a version of liberalism that is very, that's very um, Eurocentric but it's also influenced by the U.S., perhaps the U.S. as the, you know, the guardian of, kind of the values of liberty. It's so important for even the American constitution and so on. And then all those other forms of freedom and liberty in the Shantytown that I didn't really even imagine they existed. 
I started to think, well, maybe, you know, we need to talk about them and we need to show to people that they exist. It's important to acknowledge that they exist. And if we don't, we are just um, erasing something that's important in people's lives. And I don't think we should do that. I think we should take them seriously. And I call, you know, kind of all these other forms of liberty and freedom together. I call them um, as a provocation almost, um, minoritarian form or, or minoritarian modes of liberalism. Exactly. There's the title of the book. Right. We got there. And I promise I would say something about travestis too. It's um, the way I got to most of the practices and discourses and ideas on freedom and liberty was from um, this friendship. So I made a very early during field work, I made a friendship uh, unexpectedly. I was eating a slice of watermelon in a very warm day. And I hear this voice coming, coming from behind me. And this voice just says, um, you know, delicious. And then I look and there was Natasha, the friend to whom I, have, I, did, I dedicate my book to her. And she wasn't really, I thought she was remarking at the watermelon, but she was kind of looking at me saying delicious. And I was a bit shocked. But um, soon we became close friends and Natasha would identify herself as a travesti. And uh, it's not a very easy term to define but it's, um, I think there's some consensus that it's a kind of a gender category that's very Latin American. The atravesti is not the same as a transvestite. So, you know, sometimes in the US people think that I'm talking about transvestites and it's not the same. A travesti is usually, um, so a person who is born or declared at birth to be a male, to have a male body and they choose a female gender expression but it's not uh, something temporary. You know, you, you could imagine that a transvestite could be kind of a cross-dressing or something more temporary. For travestis, it's a, it's a long-term kind of expression of a female gender. But things get a bit more complicated because if you, there is a book by Don Kulik called Travesti, exactly. And he argues that what makes travestis very special would be the fact that even though they have a female gender, they still keep a male homosexual subjectivity. So they still understand, understand themselves as males, even though they have a female gender expression, they wouldn't. So in his book, the, there are passages in which, you know, the travestis themselves would, would say, you know, we know very well we are not um, females. Uh, we are travestis. So we have a kind of a male body but um, female kind of gender expression. And Kulik would say, um, uh, still keeping a male homosexual kind of subjectivity. Now that has been argued. And I think the point is, it's hard to generalize. For some travestis now, you know, the ones I talked to, um, some are, are not even so sure that the male body so for Kulik and for a lot of travestis to keep, uh, there's an, an importance in having a penis, for example, because for sex work, that's a lot of um, the attraction to, to travestis um, is that men want to date a woman with a penis, right? So a female gender expression, but with a penis. Uh, 
but even that during my research i met travishis that said you know they, they would like to have sex um reassignment surgery so there were you could say transsexuals in that sense um some of the travishis like natasha my friend she wasn't very keen on a fixed female gender expression so it's like she didn't want to look very female all the time so i would ask her you know would you like to have silicone implants like you know uh, and she would say not really because they would be too permanent to me i prefer to play with my boobs you know sometimes i want them very large and sometimes i don't want any so just as to show i think um so it's a different it's a difficult category to define travishis but um, I hope you get a sense of what it means. And to the book, it's very important because it was through what you could call those LGBTQ connections through Natasha and other friends that I kind of encountered a lot of the liberties and freedoms that I describe in the book, discuss. And um, Natasha's life story actually helps with the narrative arc of the book. So the main title is Minoritarian Liberalism, which is more conceptual. But then the subtitle is Atravesti, a travesti life in a Brazilian favela. And that life, um, it, it's really a lot related to Natasha's life. Yeah, and I love the way you describe it. It kind of reminds me of how you were first describing the project in that like people want to have kind of a really like specific view of what they're going to discover or ways to like categorize things when you like take something on or looking at something. But then when you really get into it, like it's so much more complex and dynamic and fluid and like everybody's different and having different experiences. And these categories are like gross generalizations with people's experiences are so individual actually. You, you're so right, you're spot on. And again, I'm glad that you would bring it you know to light because i had not um, previously thought about that but it's exactly yeah i think there is something very interesting there that life is always more complicated than we we can imagine or we can anticipate and it goes to you know categories like liberalism or it goes to categories like travesties exactly exactly um is there anything else you want to talk about specifically from the book? Um, so the book, I kind of jumped ahead and I talked about um, chapter six before um, talking about the other chapters. So just to say, um, there is a preface and in, in, in an introduction that I feel are more theoretical, slightly more theoretical, because they kind of engage with defining what I what I call a normative version or a normative mode of liberalism. And then I propose something called a minoritarian mode of liberalism. Um, and those debates require a little bit more kind of philosophical debates and kind of political theory, anthropological theory. But um, I hope they're not dry because that was a point that I, I really wanted this book to be readable and accessible and engaging. And I hope that even those sections that are more theoretical, the, pref the preface and the introduction, I think um, you know, people can easily, you don't need to be an expert to kind of understand the, those arguments. And then the chapters, uh, there are seven chapters and um, uh, also an epilogue. 
and they are a lot more um, kind of in a narrative um, style uh, describe scenes and I tell the stories of my encounters and how I came across ideas and practices of freedom and in different contexts so chapters one and two I talk about the shantytown in Rio and how you had this, like I already said, the kind of the drug lords and how the drug lords enforce their own rule. But those rules are also interesting because they're called rules of the favela or laws of the hill, right? I call them, they call them lei do morro, laws of the hill. And those laws also, they create freedoms and liberties that, you know, I did not anticipate. So even though some people think, oh, this is just tyranny, when you're in the Shantitani, you, you understand that people kind of see those rules as being somehow fair. Um, I'm not saying that they're perfect. I'm not saying this is the perfect system, but people would agree with a lot of those like rules in the Shantitown and how people should um, kind of uh, live their lives. So those systems in place, they operated and people in the Shantitown they were not necessarily against those laws. And just an example of how those laws are interesting in terms of freedom, and in particular to the case of travestis or the LGBTQ population, is that there was a law in place in this one shanty town where I lived. And shanty towns are very different, so you'll not find the same thing everywhere. But in this large shanty town, there was a law in which the drug lord would say, don't mess with my facts, right? You're not allowed to mess with my LGBTQ people. And I found this through a, a, an episode with a friend, with a gay friend, and the, the, we met a kind of a group of homophobic teenagers in the shantytown, and those teenagers um, said something very nasty. And instead of just ignoring as I would do or kind of running away or something, my friend made the point of turning back to the group of teenagers and saying, look, as far as I'm concerned, these are not the, the, the laws of the, the hill, right? These are not the rules under which we live. So you are not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to say homophobic things. And if you keep doing that, I'll report you. Do you want me to report you to the drug lord? And those teenagers were really scared because you know the punishment could be very severe from the drug lords. But to me, that gave a you know at that moment a sense of protection or even you know you could call this you know the kind of the existence of lgbtq rights that even outside of the shantytown in the so-called formal city in brazil i never felt i never felt entitled to kind of turn to a homophobic person and say you know it's illegal even though it is illegal right now but for a long time it wasn't illegal we know that there's been a know uh, kind of a lot of struggle for lgbtq rights but what i'm saying is that internally in the kind of in this life in the shantytown lgbtq rights were more protected than outside of the shantytown and to me that was mind-blowing and um, it also speaks to what i call a minoritarian version of liberalism right um then chapters, um, in chapter three, it's a very different context because I leave the Shantytown for a while and I go back to trace Natasha's kind of family history. I go back to the Brazilian hinterlands. Natasha migrated from the northeastern part of Brazil to Rio. And it's like more than maybe 3,000 kilometers away. 
from uh, the hinterlands of a very dry region. And that chapter describes like the house where she was born, what's her family like in, in the hinterlands, what made her migrate, what's the discussions in place. Sometimes we assume that the hinterlands are backwards. They're not modern because they don't have um, values such as um, the guarantee of freedom for LGBTQ people, right? We very often imagine that LGBTQ people are safer in urban centers and that in the backlands, in the hinterlands, in the interior of like, small towns, that LGBTQ people are in danger or they're not allowed to exist. Now, in Natasha's case, she did have a lot of problems in terms of homophobia, transphobia in the hinterlands. But this is not because necessarily there was a lack of liberty uh, in a kind of a, in a broad sense. What I realized in this chapter is that um, if you can call them peasants in the hinterlands, they have their own, again, views and understandings of what you know, freedom is and what freedoms matter and what freedoms are important. So talking to them in the hinterlands, they would say things like, oh, I would never want, I don't understand why people migrate to the big city to um, sell their labor or what they would say to enslave themselves, right? To be enslaved by a, a, a boss or be enslaved by someone that exploits your labor force and you work 12 hours a day. And you know that's not the lifestyle that they thought in the hinterland would be the best. And of course, this is not everyone because a lot of people migrate to the big cities. But Natasha's mother, for example, was very clear that what made her so unhappy is that her children were migrating and becoming um, uh, enslaved in the big city. Now for Natasha, that movement actually meant that when she got to the shantytown, she could be the transvesti, the tra the, sorry, the travesti, the travesti that she um, always wanted to be. Um, but it's not necessarily just the formal, it's not the, the, the idea of modernity in the liberal sense of the formal city that is attracting Natasha. That's something important to that chapter too. But I don't think Natasha was necessarily attracted to modernity in that sense. She was attracted to the conditions that the shantytown could offer to, to her own life. Um, so that, that chapter kind of plays with ideas of peasant liberalism, uh, favela or shantytown liberalism, and then vis-a-vis -vis a formal or normative liberalism. Um, very quickly, I'll talk about chapter four, which is uh, very interesting. Um, I met a group of queer kids. There were some children, actually, teenagers, hanging out together, declaring, you know, saying out loud they were queer and free. Some would, some would say they were uh, travestis, some would say they were gay, um, some, there were some lesbians, but they were out and about and very open about who they were. They were um, no fear of saying at age, I don't know, age 12, 13, that they were queer. And to me, that was very interesting and special. Um, but there was a lot of judgment in the shantytown about their excessive freedom. So people would, even in the shantytown, people would think they were too free. And I started to realize in that chapter that, um, in fact, it's a, it's a problem. In, we have a problem understanding that children in general can be free. We assume that children uh, are not 
totally in charge of in control of themselves that somehow they're not totally ready to take responsibility and therefore we usually don't think children should be too free and that's very interesting because um you know, we're all for liberties. We all like, oh yeah, liberalism is great and we should be free and we should value freedoms and so on. But then when it comes to children, we're like, no, you know, you, you, cannot, you cannot be that free. And so I started to discuss some um, work on street children and children that live on the streets. And again, some, uh, there was a book called uh, The Gaminos of Bogota, uh, I mixed. I just mixed English and Spanish here. That's um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in that book, the author claims that what really strikes us about uh, street children or children that live in, on the streets is that they are the sense of their their claim to freedom is too radical for us. That somehow that bothers our understanding of the place of children. That we think they should be in. Um, guarded by a family and then when you talk to children as in this queer kind of group in the shantytown they would say things like you know why would i be subjected subjecting myself to sometimes domestic violence or unfair adults that want to control my life and i'm better off hanging out with my friends and not being at home i think that uh Connecting that to a sense of queerness and to how, you know, they played, they had a lot of different bodily performances. They were kind of testing their flexibility, doing leg splits and dancing. That was part of their expression of freedom, which was very bodily, kind of the flexibility of the body. They would turn to me and ask, like, why, why are you an incubated, an incubated fag? I was like, what does that mean? I'm an incubated fag. And they'll say, you know, like you need to liberate yourself. And like, but I'm either I came out of the closet already, you know, I'm not in the closet. But what they meant is that coming out of the closet just by verbally saying I'm gay, and then that to them, that's not enough. You know, they wanted to see me experimenting with my body. They're like, Oh, you're so boring with your trousers and you know, your shirt, and you need to, you need to liberate yourself, you know. So you see how even that sense of liberation that sometimes coming out of the closet, we assume, I think, very much based on the normative liberalism kind of ideal. We meet, you know, like you have a, a meeting and you tell your family verbally, I want to come out. It's like an agreement, almost in a contractualist sense, as philosophers would say, you know, uh, for these kids that that wasn't enough that the type of liberation that they were looking for, kind of the queer liberation, was a lot more radical than I think we have under normative uh, liberalism. Moving on, chapter five is the one uh, that I talk about. Uh, actually, it still connects to the queer kids because I realized that some of these queer kids were going to the evangelical liberation services that I talked about when it started. Interesting. Yeah, when I, we started this <laughs> conversation, I, I realized, wow, you know, how come these kids that are so radical about being free are going to liberation services in this evangelical church? Because they also would tell me they hated evangelicals. So, but I soon found out that it was to them more like, uh, what what are we gonna do today? They would say, is there any parties? Are we gonna go dancing? They were actually most of them in uh, this Afro-Brazilian religion called Umbanda. 
And then they would say, is there any Umbanda ritual today uh, for Brazilian ritual? And no. And then at some point, somebody suggested, you know what there is today is the liberation service at the Universal Church. Uh, and they were all said, okay, let's go to the liberation service. It was an event. Now, it was an event when I started to uh, follow and go with them. It was an event because partly the church made turned that into an event by turning off the lights of the church at midnight or close to midnight and invoking demons to manifest themselves. So they would say, you know, demons or I know evil spirits, you are here in this room. And there were hundreds of people. And they would say, I want you to manifest yourself. So I want you to present yourself right now in front of us. And then people would get um, possessed by those uh, spirits. And the whole point of manifesting the spirits was that after the manifestation, the uh, pastors would exercise the evil spirits, right? So the liberation happened by first uh, calling the, 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 the evil spirits and then exercising them. Now, a big problem that I realized during those uh, rituals was that what the evangelicals called evil spirits very often were actually Afro-Brazilian divinities. So when those kids went to Umbanda, to the Umbanda rituals, they were cultivating Afro-Brazilian um, forces, Afro-Brazilian uh, entities, or the, you know sometimes Orishas, uh, but divinities. And when they went to the evangelical church, they were not only watching, that was, that was also surprising, they were taking part, some of them were getting uh, possessed in the church, and the kind of pastors were calling those Afro-Brazilian uh, divinities, calling them evil spirits or calling them the devil. So there's a kind of an element of religious racism there. Mm -hmm. Now, the fact that the kids were getting exercised, I thought, well, this is really interesting because they're subjecting themselves to this church. But then I realized that every week that I would go, sometimes I would see the same kids there and they were again getting possessed and again getting liberated. But over the long run, the liberation wasn't working, obviously. You know what I mean? The evangelical sense of liberating, it wasn't working because they kept coming back and going back to church. So over the long term, I argue in that chapter that actually, you know, it's not, it doesn't seem to me that's the evangelical church that's winning that uh, that dispute. Yeah, and maybe I am, the, the kids were able to be possessed because that's what they do in their own rituals anyway. And they would, this is just like another place they could do it and like have their own like ritual possessions. Right. And then the pastor might think that they're, you know, making people go away or spirits yeah, go away, but it's not working now. <laughs> Those yeah. spirits are way older than you guys. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, I conclude that chapter by thinking, what is the sense of liberation from the church, right? Because I thought, as I said first, I thought that would be a minoritarian form of liberation. But then what I think the evangelical church is doing is more complicated because they are saying that there should be a place for spirits that's outside of the body and that the ideal subject is not the one possessed, right? The ideal subject is the self-controlled individual self-possessed that you're in possession of your own body and if you think of it that's a core value in what i call normative liberalism 
that we are in possession of ourselves, that we look after ourselves, that we own ourselves. And when you're possessed by spirits, you're not really in control there, right? You're taken over. You, your body's taken over. You, you do, we're dealing with other uh, powers and other forms of life and with non-humans. And the church was saying, this is wrong. You know, we need to exercise. You need to put the spirits where they should be. And to the church was hell. And you as a person should not be getting possessed. Uh, so I started to think really carefully about this. And I, what I first thought was a minoritarian form of liberalism from the evangelical church, I ended up in the chapter calling it a normative version, but not the state, not the same as the state. It's almost as if like, as you have many forms of minoritarian liberalism, you can have different forms of normative liberalism. And the state operates up to a point, and then there is a fold, and you get the evangelical church doing a similar job of reinforcing some normative values over people, but from different sides of the fold. So that's, uh, that's kind of, the, kind of the, one of the conclusions of that chapter. And then chapter six I already talked about, which is the one I go to Rome. It's called Roman slavery. And then chapter seven is the last one. It's called As If There Is No Tomorrow. And I discussed some difficult issues too, uh, related mostly to how a lot of the people that I met during field work um, had difficulties in their lives. And I don't want in this book to say that life in Chantitans is easy or that there are no problems, you know, to acknowledge that, that there are minoritarian forms of liberalism in the Shantitan is not the same as saying that life is perfect. It's not the same as, you know, some people would say romanticizing poverty. That's not my intention at all. Um, and in this chapter seven, I think I make this clear that there are several problems. A lot of the people that I did research with, not a lot, but many of them died, for example, and died very young. And in that chapter, I, I try to struggle and think about those deaths and what they mean. And I kind of speculate if we, in normative liberalism, if we don't have already a fixed understanding of what life should be in the sense that people should be born and then should, they should be grow up uh, and then they get married and then they have children and then they you know, pass on their inheritance to the children and then you have to live as long as possible before you die, right? That, that's kind of, there is a life, um, a kind of time expectation, a time orientation that perhaps that's part of normative liberalism and the no normative understanding of what the life should be. That's, um, I think, some of those LGBTQ friends and a lot of the um, travestis or travestis were telling me something different that, you know, they, it's not that they wanted to die early, but above all, they wanted to live a very intense life. More than quantity in terms of years, they wanted to do everything they could and enjoy their present and be who they were at the moment they were living. And sometimes that would bring uh, perhaps an earlier death than what we expected. But it seemed to me that um, some people were aware of that um, kind of that situation. Of course, that there are structural factors. And of course, that people die sooner that, than they should, I think, because there are inequalities and there's a lack of access to you know, healthcare and all that is part of the story. But it's not the whole story.
So that chapter, I tried to kind of come to terms with suffering when people died. And then also, I think, uh, as again, in that conversation, conversation with Jack Halberstam, um, just getting a sense that I'm not the savior, right? That, uh, and he said he was relieved when he noticed that this book is not written from the point of view of a savior that's going to Ashanti town to save people or um, not to do something similar to what the evangelical church is proposing, for example. And then the epilogue, I just really briefly kind of bring everything to an end and tell a little bit of what happened to Ashanti towns after my research and up to the point that I followed the events that's in the, the epilogue. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot. But, um... That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> this is great, it's amazing work. And I can't wait to see what you do next because I'm sure you're going to be up to many things. Thank you. Yeah, uh, so just to give you a little, a little sense of and a, a bit of a taste of what, what I'm doing next. Uh, during those Afro-Brazilian religious rituals in the Shantytown. And I really encountered them in the Shantytown because where I come from, um, you know, kind of the Midwest, but also being middle-class, uh, we did not have a lot of exposure to Afro-Brazilian Afro religions. But in, the, in Rio, Afro-Brazilian religions are kind of more common. And in the Shantytown, that they, they had a lot of Umbanda. But in those, in one of those events, and I described that in the book, chapter five, uh, and uh, a spirit comes up to me, uh, possessing somebody's body, and tells me that I would, you know, see the truth of it. That I would find out a lot more about their kind of their their religion and about uh, spirits and and orishas, Afro-Brazilian divinities, and so on. And I was a bit disappointed because that one night I was expecting something major to happen, and nothing happened really. I was like, okay, so what what will what will I know? I mean. I'm here, I've seen the ritual, but I didn't get a sense of anything special happening. Of course, the, the, the ritual itself is special, but I left. And then what I didn't know is that over time, a lot of different things would happen that would bring me in touch with Afro-Brazilian religions and in different contexts to the point that I was actually much later, uh, I had you know, readings, um, cowrie, they would use cowrie or seashells to, to do readings. And my readings would say you you have to get initiated into uh, this other Afro-Brazilian religion called Candomblé. And much later, I'm actually, I got initiated. And uh, I live and teach at the Federal University of Bahia. And Bahia, the, the capital of the state in Brazil, the state is called Bahia, but the capital is called Salvador. And Salvador is the largest black city outside of Africa anywhere. And it has a very strong Candomblé kind of community. And I was initiated in Salvador and I'm, you know, kind of part of Candomblé. And the book or what I expect the next book to be follows that story of, um, goes more in depth into the sense of black freedom and what does uh, kind of those religious rituals mean in terms of freedom for people, for black people in Brazil? And I question the official abolition. You know, Brazil was very late in abolishing slavery, 1888. And um, I question if that formal abolition actually is as important as people think. 
and I start to trace connections back to West Africa. So I've been doing a lot of field work in Nigeria. Uh, I've been going to Nigeria and kind of tracing those connections to discuss. I think we talk a lot about slavery in the past and you know, abolition of slavery in the past, but we don't know much about contemporary ideas and practices of freedom and liberty across the Atlantic, you know, for black folks. Um, so I'm really trying to connect and put together that story of uh, um, black liberties and freedoms in this transatlantic context and based on my initiation in uh, Brazilian uh, candomblé. So that's, that's part of what comes next, I hope. Amazing. I look forward to that. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. That sounds amazing. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Moses Lino Isilva on minoritarian liberalism, a Travici life in a Brazilian favela from University of Chicago Press. Links to this book can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Remember, Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapar Books, 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, trapar.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon patrons. Your support is so appreciated. For links and more information, you can also visit the Rendering Unconscious main website, renderingunconscious.org, and my website, drvanessasinclair.net. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Or at TikTok at drvanessasinclair.net. 23. And now a song from an upcoming album I've done with Pete Murphy. This will be our fourth studio album. You can check out our other collaborations at Highbrow Lowlife's Bandcamp page. That's highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Enjoy. Introduction. Often our dreams are a way to encourage ourselves to remain asleep. You're asleep. You're asleep. You're asleep. You're asleep. You're awake. You're Awake, you're awake, you're awake, you're, you're 
asleep. You're asleep. You're asleep. You're asleep. Awake. You're awake. You're awake. You're awake. You're awake. You have been offered a choice. No, you cannot have both.